Well, today we're continuing our series in the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And as we do so, we're coming to the city of Philadelphia today. You'll remember we've been traveling around this geographic circle in the area of modern-day Turkey. This is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but Philadelphia over in 90 AD that we're looking at today. The the Greek word Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's a a word that we know uh, denotes that love, but it was actually... This city was named after two brothers who had great love for one another. There was a uh, two brothers who shared a throne at the time. One was Eumenes II, and his other brother was Attalus II. And normally when you have two brothers who are uh, both claiming the throne as king, it, it ends in a murder where one kills the other one off to seize control. But Eumenes was such a lover of his brother that he gave up his right to rule as king so that there would be only Atlas seated on the throne. And to commemorate the sacrificial love of his brother, he gave uh, his brother the name Philadelphus, which means lover of a brother. And, And then he named this city in his honor. Now, the city was strategically located 30 miles southeast of Sardis, Uh, as you can see on the map, but what you don't see is it was in the middle of a valley. And over on the eastern end of this valley, it was a broad valley, and this is where the city of Philadelphia was located. Now, it was a very strategic place. It was called the Gateway to Asia because there were three different kingdoms that actually came together at the juncture of this valley, and all of the roads went through this valley. So it was a city that controlled the area, and it was called the Gateway to Asia, Uh, And it was set up as a missionary city. Now, not to Christianize, rather it was to Hellenize. You remember the Greek culture of the day uh, was spreading throughout the area, and this was set up to expose the surrounding kingdoms to the language, the literature, and the ways of the Greek culture. And as we look at this letter today, Jesus Christ is telling us that we have a much greater message to spread. It is not the one of the culture of the day. Rather, it is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as he speaks to the the believers in that day and us today as well, what he wants us to know is that he has placed each of us in our own strategic Philadelphias, our own places where we have an opportunity to spread the good news of the gospel. I invite you to look with me in your Bible at Revelation chapter 3 as we read verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, these letters, as you'll recall, open with Jesus identifying himself in a way that would speak to the culture of the day. Remember, as we just discussed, this was the gateway to the the area. And as such, all the roads were leading through that valley. And when we read that Jesus says he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open, it shows that he controls access Uh, not just to the area, but more importantly, to the kingdom of God itself. The Jews who had become believers in this time and in this city were very familiar with the passage in the Old Testament called Isaiah 22, 22. And in it, there was a steward by the name of Eliakim. And he was the, the chief steward for David, King David. 
And he was given the king to the, the key to the kingdom in the sense that he controlled the city as well as access to the palace and the king. And anybody who wanted to come into the city or come into David, uh, he was the steward who had the ability to deny them access. And as Jesus is telling them this, he's letting them know he is the one who, who decides who will be welcomed into the kingdom of God. In the Bible, it's very clear that Jesus is the one who is the key holder. In John 5.22, it tells us, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. If you look earlier in Revelation 1.18, there it says, Jesus holds the keys to death and of Hades. Those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior will be welcomed into the heavenly kingdom. But those who have denied him, those who have rejected him as their Savior, will also be rejected, as you can see by reading in Revelation chapter 20, in verses 11 through 15, where the great white throne judgment takes place. And all who come before Jesus at that moment are judged and sent to the lake of fire because their name is not in the book of life. Now, if you're here and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so. Because God says to you, he wants to grant you access into the kingdom. And John 1.12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. Jesus says here that he is one who is holy and he is one who is true. Because he is holy, a holy God without sin, he has the ability to judge sin. Not only is he uh, holy and true in that sense, but he is the one who is holy and true and the way. We read in John fourteen six where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus not only controls the way to heaven, but he is the way. In the Gospel of John, he says in chapter, nine, in chapter 10, verse 9, <clears throat> I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. Now, God is a holy God. He is a loving God, as we know, but he's a holy God. And because of that, he cannot allow sin in his presence, which is why he went to the cross to deal with our sin, to remove it from us. As we saw last week, and we talked about how Jesus was the propitiation, the payment, for our sins, not only paying the penalty, but even removing the wrath that separates us from a, a relationship with God. And as Jesus writes this letter, he's, he's figuratively jingling the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He's reminding them that he is the one who controls who will be welcomed into heaven. And as he does so, he says in verse 8, I know your deeds. We've talked before about what would Jesus say to us if he said, I know your deeds. And many of us shudder because we can think of some sins or things that we've done that would, would cause us to, to know that we're not welcomed into heaven. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not a single one of us who has the right to be before a holy God because of our sin. Now, when I read a verse like that, I know your deeds, I'm thankful that I can read other verses in the Bible like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where it tells us, for by grace... You've been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not our deeds, so that no one should boast. Mark Twain once quipped that if heaven went by merit uh, rather than favor, your dog would get in and you would stay out. <laughs> but thankfully, it's not based on merit. It's based on God's love and grace. And because of that, because our sins have been paid for by Christ, we can be welcomed into heaven. Now, while we cannot earn our way into heaven, 
the scripture is clear that how we live our lives as believers is important, that God does care about how we live our lives. Uh, We've talked again in previous messages, you'll recall, about the Bema judgment seat of Christ. It's called that because of the Greek word bematos that's used there in Corinthians that describes the judgment seat, not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, but the Bema judgment seat is where we as believers come before God to receive rewards for how we've lived our lives. So as Christ says, I know your deeds, it's important. As he says to them in verse 10, I know your deeds, how you have kept my word and have not denied my name. <clears throat> now, the situation here in Philadelphia is, is, in a, is a mirror contrast to what we looked at last week. If you were here when we looked at, at the message to the church in Sardis, You'll recall that Jesus said uh, they were facing no opposition. They were a church that was spiritually sleeping. They were, they were seen as being dead because they, they were doing nothing for God. And because they were not doing anything that would upset our enemy, Satan, he was leaving them alone. There was no opposition. Uh, but this week, we see that those in Philadelphia were facing great opposition because they were living for God. So there's a mirror opposite, not only in the fact that there was persecution in Philadelphia and nothing in Sardis, but as you look at the words that are written last week in Sardis, Jesus had no words of commendation, good things to say to the believers there, whereas this week in Philadelphia, he has no words of correction for the believers because they were living so faithfully for him. Now, in verse 9, we read, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. It says, Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet to know that I have loved you. Now, back in Revelation 2.9, we talked about those where it said who were Jews and were not. And we saw it, Jesus wasn't speaking of their ethnicity. He wasn't denying that they were born as Jews, but he says they were not living Uh, as Jews, as God's chosen people, because they were those who were opposing the true followers of God, those who had come to understand Jesus was the promised Messiah for the nation of Israel. And were so as he speaks of the synagogue of Satan, he's speaking of those who were Jews attending the synagogues there in Philadelphia, but they were at war with the Christians. There were those in the religious establishment of Philadelphia who were serving Satan because they were going against those who were sharing the truth. Now, as those in the synagogues tried to shut down the spread of the gospel, uh, Jesus said because uh, they, he said they would fail. Look at verse 8. He says, Behold, I have put before you, the church of Philadelphia, an open door which no one can shut. Now, the picture of an open door is used throughout the Bible to speak of opportunity that God has presented to spread the message of the gospel. We see that in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9, where Paul told the Corinthians, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service is open to me, and there are many adversaries. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 to uh, 4, 3, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. You know, there are times that we find ourselves facing opposition. There are times where there are roadblocks to us as we try to live for the Lord. And and some people see that as uh, the gospel being shut down. We speak in our day of closed countries where the gospel is not welcome. 
But what the scriptures tell us is there is no government, there is no person who is able to close a door that God has opened. You recall that as Paul uh, faced imprisonment himself for sharing the gospel, God used the prison itself as an open door for the gospel. He said in Philippians 1.13, My imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. God put Paul in a prison where he not only had the opportunity to share among the prisoners who were royal prisoners, but it also gave him access to the the king's guards, those who were the bodyguards of the king. And ultimately, he even had the opportunity to share the gospel uh, with Caesar and his household because of the imprisonment. As you think of your own life and the roadblocks or or places of opposition you're facing, um, as you think about going back to work on Monday or your school or even going home this afternoon where maybe there's an unbelieving family member, have you ever stopped to say, instead of seeing this as a roadblock, that maybe God is creating an opportunity? And so what you can do is begin to pray that God will open up those doors. Think in terms of grabbing a, a, some jello out of a bowl and squeezing it. What, what happens when you squeeze jello? It kind of squirts out everywhere, doesn't it? And, and that's really what opposition does. Whether we look at the first century church as persecution came, what it did was it forced the church out. You look at countries like China where the government says, we've closed down the gospel. They expelled all the missionaries. They banned the Bibles. Has the church in China ceased to exist? No. Instead, it's spreading. It's, it's spread throughout the underground churches. It's spread. There are literally millions upon millions of Chinese who have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior since the time of persecution where they thought they had closed down Christianity in that country. As God says, when I open a door, no one can shut that, jo- that door. Now, it can be costly. Those in China are losing their, their livelihoods, their property, and some even their lives. But it doesn't keep those Chinese believers from sharing their faith. I think of the picture that Vincent van Gogh once painted, not so much on a, on a canvas, but with his words. He said, fishermen have always known that the sea is dangerous and there are storms, but they have never thought that sufficient reason to stay home. As you think of that, picture your life as being like a fishing boat. It's very easy for us to say, I'm going to stay safe in the harbor, right? I don't want to go out where there are storms. But a fishing boat was not made to stay in the harbor. It was made to go out. And as you think of just sitting idle in a harbor, you know, a boat's not safe there either. If it doesn't ever get unmoored and and move, the bottom will rot out. It'll crust over and the boat will ultimately sink. And in the Bible, God has called on us to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. God doesn't say for us to gather up in our little holy huddle here at Wayside, be among other believers in the bubble and be safe. He says we are to go out into the storms of the world. We are to go out and share the good news of the gospel as fishers of men. We're not told to simply keep the faith, but we are to give it away as well. As you think about your life, God has put each of you in your own little Philadelphia. I want you to think for a moment about where you live where you work, what base you serve on, what school you attend. And I want you to think of the people that you see on a regular basis in those places. Do you realize there are many of those men and women, boys and girls that you see who would never walk through the doors of Wayside Chapel? But God has put you in their path 
to be a gateway, a strategic person to share the good news of the gospel. As I think about Wayside and what could happen if we use the connections that God has given us, the gospel would go into firehouses and police stations throughout our city. It would go into uh, doctor's offices and daycares. It would be seen in courtrooms and on college campuses. It would be in stores and school locations. Do you realize that we can cover every part of this city from A to Z as we have people who work at the amusement parks and in the zoo in our city? As you think about where the gospel could go if we as believers were willing to go out of these doors and share the good news of the gospel, where are the Philadelphias? Where is your strategic location that God has placed you today? And as you think about that open door before you, what are you doing about it? Are you walking through it? Now, I know right now you're thinking all the reasons why you can't, right? Well, you know, they don't allow me to share my faith where I work, or in the school it's not welcome, or, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not very gifted as an evangelist. I mean, who's going to listen to me? If you were here last week, you'll recall that I read you a letter from a woman who at the age of 67 said, okay, fine, I'll finally share the gospel. And as she did so, uh, she ended up leading a person to faith. Now this week, I've received two notes from those in our church who said that that story spurned them on to share the gospel this week in their places. Uh, I wish I could report to you that both had success, but what I wrote back to them as an encouragement is, you plowed. You planted a seed. You watered a seed maybe that was already there. The Bible does not tell us that every time we share the gospel that somebody will come to faith. In fact, statistically, it shows that the average person needs to be exposed to the gospel uh, over 10 times before they begin to, to open up to it. And you don't know if you're the first, the ninth, or the 10th the time that may be the one that gets to harvest uh, that, that fruit that God may have. It is not our job to lead somebody to the Lord. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? It is our job to share the good news. God is the one who draws all men and women to himself, the scripture says. And so as you think in terms of where you are, are you, are you sharing the good news? Are you plowing maybe very hard soil? You might be the one who is planting the seed or watering it. You may also be the one who one day has the privilege of harvesting the fruit somebody else has prepared. No matter what part of the process you are a part of, the scriptures are clear that you share in the reward of the harvest. And so as you think in terms of where you are and what you're doing, it is your job to, to pray and to share your faith. As you look at the church there in Philadelphia, verse 8, Jesus says, you have a little power. What he says is you are small. You are limited in resource and, and maybe even in size in this city. But he says, that hasn't kept you from being faithful to share. Instead, we find Jesus commending them for depending on him and sharing the gospel. Do you realize that God loves to use the little things to do his great work? Read 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. There it tells us, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. If you think you have to be a world-class speaker to share the good news of the gospel, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.17 tells us this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not, be, would, be made, would not be made void. What Paul says is, it's not how skilled you are in sharing the gospel. 
It's not how great you are as an apologist in debating and arguing for the faith. He says, is your life, are, are your lips consistent with your life? Are you sharing what you've received of God's great love? If you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that is all you need. Because in being a believer, you have the Holy Spirit resident within you. You have God himself within you. And, and, and he, will, he will give you the words. He will give you the prompting. He will help you. Now, that's not an excuse for us not to memorize Scripture or to prepare uh, in terms of understanding why we believe what we believe. But what it means is don't think that, that you are limited in what God can do with you because uh, you haven't been to seminary or you're not a vocational missionary. Every one of us has the ability to share the good news. So whether we're talking about wayside or one of us as individual believers, we need to remember it's not based upon our size, our resources, our background, but it's based upon God himself that will bring about the harvest. In John 6:44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. Again, remember, it's God's job to bring somebody to faith, not yours and mine. Now, as those in Philadelphia were faithful to keep the faith and share it with others, Christ said to them in verse 9 that he would make their enemies come and bow down at their feet to know that I have loved you. When we read that these, these enemies will bow down at his feet, it's, it's not for their glory. It's not for their revenge. What God is saying is he's pointing ahead to that time, that, that kingdom time where we as believers will be with him. We will share in his uh, glory Uh, The scripture tells us there is a time coming where all will bow before Christ. Philippians 2, 10 through 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Revelation 3, 10, we see another promise that's to come for those who are Christians. Because it says, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, when it comes to this hour of testing, if you were here when we looked at the Thyatira 2 and the things to come, that second sermon on the church of Thyatira, you'll recall we walked through all the end time events. And we talked about one uh, event called the tribulation. That seven-year terrible time of testing that will come that you can read about in Revelations chapter 6 through 19. And as Jesus is talking about this tribulation, this this time of testing, he calls it the hour. It's not a 60-minute time period. What he's letting them know is it's going to be limited in duration. Uh, It's actually a seven-year period, as you'll recall, from Daniel 9.24 through 27 that we looked at. And so during this time of tribulation, we're told that Jesus says the Christians will be kept from it. Now, on my chart, I I called it the pre-tribulational rapture, and I I joked with you that if you believe in a mid-trib or a post-trib position, you're wrong, and I had a few people say that really wasn't funny, Roger. And, uh, And I told you that I believe the scriptures tell us that we as Christians will be taken pre-tribulationally before this time. And uh, one of the verses that I mentioned to you is 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Now in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 
there are different prepositions in the Greek language uh, that, that speak of things. If God were going to take us through the time of tribulation, you read about the 144,000 Jews who will be sealed in Revelation chapter 7, and they appear again in Revelation 14 after their time on the earth. Those individuals will be taken through the tribulation. They will be here. They will be preserved and sealed. Uh, But the believers, Christians in present day, now many will come to faith, as you recall, during the tribulation. But for you and I today who are Christians, I believe we will be taken from the earth. Uh, The Greek preposition used is ek. Ek means out of or from. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, what we're told is to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, as you look at that, that verse, uh, the preposition used, the three times you see the word from underlined is ek. It's not dia. God doesn't take us through. It says, wait for his son, Jesus, where? From heaven. Jesus comes out of heaven. We are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead, from among the dead, out from the dead. And he delivers us, who are believers, out from the wrath to come, not dia through the wrath to come. So this is just one of the reasons that I believe the scriptures are clear that we will be, as Christians, removed from the earth during this time of wrath. Now, as Christ talks about this event... um, that's going to take place in Revelation 3.11, he says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one will take your crown. Now, people sometimes wonder, where is God? God says he, Jesus, you recall, says, I'm coming quickly. And people say, well, then where is he? We've been waiting for 2,000 years for Jesus. He said, I'm coming quickly. Is that fast? Well, again, when we think in terms of God's economy and how he operates, uh, 2 Peter 3.8 tells us, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is as one day. There was a man who was talking to God one day, and he said, he said God, what, what, is, what is time like to you? What, what, what is a million years like to you? And God said, it's a second. And the man said, God, what is a million dollars to you? And he said, well, it's like a penny. And, and, and this man said to God, well, can, can I have a, a, a penny, a million dollars? And God said, sure, in a second. <laughs> so as, as we look at the way that God sees eternity, friends, God has been gone two days. Two days. Is that quick? You bet. Now, you're sitting here saying, well, what does that mean for me, Roger? Do I have to wait another 1,000 years, 2,000, 3,000 years? I don't know. The Bible tells us that only God knows the time of his return. But he does promise us that it is imminent. He tells us in Revelation 22.10, I am coming quickly. I can tell you this for a fact. We are closer to the return of Christ today than we've ever been before. And he is coming quickly. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, The Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you know what has delayed the return of Jesus? 
It is his love. It is his mercy. It is his long-suffering as he says, I see those on the earth who have not yet come to repentance, those who are not yet mine. And when I return, when that terrible time of the tribulation begins for them, it's going to be a, a horrible event. And he says, only because of his great patience and love and mercy has he delayed to give more and more the opportunity to come to faith before that event. But the scriptures are also clear that one day God will return. The time of judgment will begin. And as Jesus writes to the church at Philadelphia, he wants them to know that what they are going through now, their time of persecution was for a very limited time. He wants them to understand that their life on this earth is very short compared to the promise of eternity and what is to come. And he told them to remain faithful. And the church there at Philadelphia did. They did not lose heart. Uh, This letter was written around 90 AD, and historians tell us that there was a thriving Christian church there for 1,300 more years. In fact, as archaeologists have worked in that area, these are some pillars that you will find in the, the area of Philadelphia today. And these are pillars, massive columns that were from a Byzantine uh, church. So there was an active, very large church there during this time. Now in the background, you'll notice there's a Muslim minaret. And so the, the Muslims are, are very active in this area as well. In fact, during the time of the Crusades, when the Muslim Crusades swept through the area and Christians were being persecuted and killed, the church there continued even during this severe time of persecution. And the church is even active there today as there is a, a Christian presence in the town of Alizir, which is in that same location where Philadelphia used to be. When Jesus warns them not to let anyone take their crown, he's not talking about a possible loss of their salvation. Uh, I mentioned the beam of judgment seat earlier. And you'll remember that this is the reward stand. You find it there in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, where, and in Luke it speaks of Jesus giving the rewards. And this is the place that we come to receive the rewards for how faithful we've lived our lives. But we cannot lose our salvation. 1 Corinthians 3.15 tells us, If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. What is he suffering loss of? Not his salvation. Listen, it says, but he himself will be saved, yet is through fire. What it means is, as our life works are put in the fire and judged, remember all the, the things that are worthless, wood, hay, stubble are burned up, but the things that are precious remain and are the rewards we receive. And what God says is, some of us are going to have our lives judged and it's going to go poof. There's not going to be anything left. And he's going to say, you're saved, but it's through fire. You smell like smoke. That's all you have for eternity. In 2 John 2, 8, we're told, watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. One of the heavenly rewards that is spoken of are called crowns, stephanos. Uh, These are believers' rewards, and you see some of them. We don't have time to walk through them in detail, but in 1 Corinthians 9.25, there's the imperishable crown for leading a disciplined life. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 speaks of a crown of rejoicing for those who were faithful in evangelism and discipleship. In uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, there's a crown of righteousness for loving the Lord's appearing. 
Uh, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10 speaks of the crown of life for those who have endured trials. And then in 1 Peter 5.4, there's a crown of glory for those who have shepherded the, the flock, God's flock faithfully. So there are rewards in heaven. We've talked before about the responsibility rewards in the millennial kingdom where we co-reign with Christ. There are the, the crown rewards that we will receive. There are also proximity rewards uh, where we will be, uh, certain people will be closer to Christ in the kingdom. They'll have floor seating uh, and others will be in the nosebleed seats. Um, some of those who have the, the floor seating are found in Revelation 4, 10 through 11. Uh, there in Revelation 4, you, it speaks of the 24 thrones that are surrounding the throne of Jesus. And this is what uh, Revelation 4, 10 through 11 tells us. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever. And they will cast their crowns, these crowns, before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. You see, there's the position rewards of proximity for those who have served God faithfully. But for those of us who receive these type of rewards, it's not so that we can walk around in heaven and say, I've got a bigger crown than you. I have more bling than you. We are going to take these rewards and we are going to lay them at the feet of our Savior in worship. And so this is what these, these crowns are. Now, who, who receives these type of rewards? Well, Revelation 3.12 tells us, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. As we've talked about before in 1 John 5, 4 through 5, it tells us an overcomer is somebody who has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, believers are overcomers. And then he speaks of the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city where that will be our home. When Jesus says, I go ahead to prepare a place for you in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is saying that is where we will be in this city, the new Jerusalem that descends out of heaven. And he says that we will have a place in it. Now, for the believers in Philadelphia, when he promises here that there will be a pillar in the temple, uh, it, it was something, again, that spoke very clearly to them in that day. You remember those pillars I showed you of the Byzantine church? You remember maybe the, the temples we've looked at, like the one to Artemis that had all those pillars in the pagan temple. And in that day and age, if you did something significant, your name would be inscribed on a pillar that was put in a place of honor. We, we do it in our day. You see plaques to people. You see statues put up in certain places. And what God says is, in my temple, in the heavenly city where I will be residing and you will be, you will stand as a, as a pillar within the city. There is this promise of honoring those who have uh, honored God. Now, when it comes to the the rewards that we receive, sometimes people wonder, does God really know what I do? You know, Roger, the, the ways that I serve God are unseen. I, I give faithfully and nobody knows who I am. I, I pray for people faithfully and that's not a public ministry that people know. I serve in places that, that nobody sees me. Men and women, Hebrews 6.10 tells us this, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 
The answer is God sees each and everything that you do, and he will reward you for it in time. You may not receive your rewards here on earth, but there are eternal rewards that are waiting for those who are faithful. As Jesus gives them their place of honor, he says, and he will not go out from it anymore. Again, this promise of security would have had special meaning to those in Philadelphia. I told you that the city was located in this valley, and that valley was a very active volcanic region. There was a lot of seismic activity that happened. In fact, the city of Philadelphia experienced regular earthquakes. One was so severe in 17 AD that the, most of the city was destroyed. And because the people who lived there were fearful of the ongoing earthquakes and that the buildings could collapse on them and the walls that they lived within uh, could, could collapse on them, many of their homes were built into the walls of the city itself. And, and because of that, some of the people said, I'm not going to live within the city anymore. We're going to move out. It's like when we see the earthquakes in Nepal or other places. People get out of the cities because they're afraid of the aftershocks. And they say, I want to be in an open area where nothing will fall on me. And people were willing to risk uh, moving outside of the security of the walled city because they were fearful of the earthquakes. And what God says, in my eternal city... There is a place of security, not just honor, but security for those who have served. And you will be with me within uh, the new Jerusalem. Now, our passage ends in verse 13 by telling us, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What Christ tells us is, I know your deeds. I know the places of opportunity I've placed you. He says, you've heard today what I want you doing. And you have ears, but have you heard? Are you listening? Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to walk through those doors that I've given to you? As you think about where God has placed you today, I want to end by mentioning an inscription that you can see. If you ever visit the Vanuatu Islands in the South Pacific, there's a, a tomb there of the Reverend John Getty. He was a missionary that, that went there to serve. And there's a marble slab over his tomb, and it says this. When he came here... There were no Christians. When he went away, there were no heathen. When he came here, there were no Christians. When he went away, home to be with the Lord, there were no heathen. Friends, as you think about your workplace, where you go to school, where you live, will God be able to say there were none there who had not heard of what Jesus did for them because you were there? Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we know that every heart that does not have you living within it is a missions field. And Lord, there is a mission field even within the doors of Wayside. Each week there are men and women, boys and girls who come here who have not yet received your Son as their Savior. And so I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here at this moment who has not yet received that great gift of new life, that today would be the day where they say to you, God, I, I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I've made mistakes and, and, and I can't earn my way home to heaven, but I can receive that great gift of new life. I can turn to you today, Jesus, right now and say, God, I want to come home. I want to turn from my sin into you as my Savior. 
And so I pray, Father, if there is someone here who has not yet taken that step of faith, that this would be the moment where they turn from their sin into you as their Savior. Lord God, many of us here have already received that great gift of new life. And right now, I ask that you would just bring to each of our minds at least one face, one name. Somebody we'll see this afternoon in our home, our neighborhood. Maybe it will be Monday morning at work. Or someone we'll see in the halls at school. And I pray, Father, as we think of this person right now, that you would help us to begin to pray for that person. To pray, Father, that you would open up an opportunity that this person would be open as well once we step through that door and share our faith that they would be receptive to hearing the good news. Father God, may you not only prepare the moment in our mouths with the words we need to speak, but God, would you give us the courage the courage we need to, to take that step and follow through and share the gospel. Father, we ask again that you'd prepare that person's heart right now to hear the gospel and that we would respond by being faithful to seize that opportunity, that open door you've given us. Father, as we end our time today, as we prepare to walk out of the doors of Wayside, we're stepping into a missions field. And so we pray, Lord, that you would go with us and you would use us in ways to share the good news of the gospel here, near, and far. We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.